Hey everyone, this is uh, Dave Broadback sitting here. It's August of 2019 and I'm getting ready for the term. Uh, you may be here. It's really hot right now in here, in this room, but you may be listening to this one. It's very cold. Isn't the internet amazing? Anyway, this is uh, the lecture you're about to hear is from Psych 4006, the history of psychology for the 2019 fall term. Hope you enjoy it. So what I want to do today is we'll finish up the stuff on uh, the Americans and because we have a couple slides left to go there and then we can go on to talk about uh, psychoanalysis and Freud, which is garbage. It's got the one place to talk about it is here. That's my view of Psychoanalysis, the one place you probably should be talking about psychoanalysis is in a history class. And maybe an English class or an art class. I don't think it's really useful in, a, in, in, what, we're, we're, in what we do. Uh, this is where we left off, right? I think. Um, so, functionalism, I was talking a little bit about Binet and how IQ testing, all that kind of stuff. So, and functionalism's in the area of the States. You've got guys like Goddard, who also looks very professorly. Um, he's got a PhD from Clark with Hall. And he sets out, or sets up the Vineland Training School. Uh, yeah, this is where we were, because we're talking about this. He has the, the Binet scales, and he has his technical terms, idiot, imbecile, and moron, which actually were real terms, and what happens with, it's what happens with a lot of things. It gets co-opted by popular culture, and we those terms now we would never use, right? But they actually had a meeting. Now his idea here was to isolate these people from society to stop them from breeding. This is gross. First of all, just like I think it just turns our general Western liberal ideas like this. Oh. Now, I don't mean liberal like liberal party or like, I mean like liberal democracy. The idea of individual freedom, those kind of liberal values, right? So you can be a conservative and a liberal. You can be a liberal and a liberal. You can be a socialist and a liberal. Okay. So I just mean liberal democracy. And <laughs> it's gross. Like this. You know the weird thing is? He's a progressive. It's a progressive idea, eugenics. The idea of stopping people from breeding. It's a, it's a lefty notion these days because it's like it'll make society better, and not just the states, in Canada, in Britain. So it's, I know today it sounds like something that's like ooh Nazis. Actually, they, that's not. They were doing it. Everybody thought it was a good idea. It's gross, but not 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 a lot of people were saying it was gross. Um, one of the things that Goddard did is he went to Ellis Island, which is where the most immigration came in if you were coming in from Europe, okay? And <coughs> there was immigration. People were concerned about immigration patterns. <coughs> this is something we have heard of before. <laughs> and more people come from Southern Europe. Northern Europe was fine, right? Oh, sure, Germans, sure, they're great. The French are great, English are great. Irish, we've got a problem with them, but whatever. Oh, wait a second, Italians are coming in now, and Romanians and stuff? Oh, I don't like them. <coughs> also Jews? 
So this, and this again, this is not something that the, you got to put yourself in the headspace of then, which is hard to do because you kind of, kind of got to channel your inner racist. But people don't like a lot of people don't like that. There's all these people who use weird alphabets and we eat weird food coming to America, and and, and Canada too. What we did in Canada is we said, oh, you know what? Hey, all you weird people with your funny alphabets and your funny food, why don't you go to Alberta and Saskatchewan? We'll give you free land. Just don't come near Ontario. So all the Ukrainians went out there. So we were happy to get more people in Canada. We just had sort of nice, clean racism in Canada. Okay, so understanding all those things is, is like, that's a thing. So, got Southern and Eastern Europe starting to show up. Goddard says, I'm going to test these people because I think most of them are stupid. Because I'm a racist son of a bitch. So, he tests them with IQ tests, because he has IQ tests. And he finds that they don't score well. I wonder why immigrants wouldn't score well on IQ tests. Maybe they don't speak English. Right! Maybe the tests are somewhat culturally biased to being American. Yeah. Okay, so doesn't occur to people, by the way. It's amazing how it's like it's like with uh, we talked about uh, what's his name, Galton, and he said genius runs in families, therefore it's genetic, well inherited. And it doesn't even occur to people that their environment's pretty good too. So he supported immigration rest uh, and, and restrictions, which a lot of, you know, like I said, it's not, it was not an unpopular or uncommon policy. So, Lita Hollingsworth, also a, a Columbia, uh, sorry, a Columbia PhD with Thorndike, <coughs> does research into sex differences, and her idea here is I'm gonna just debunk them, which I think is kind of cool, because most sex differences aren't sex differences. There are some, sure, but there's a lot fewer than we used to think. When I say we, I mean the discipline. Because they used to always be women suck. It's like girls are weak and stupid and shouldn't be trying so hard at school because it gives them headaches, basically. So there's this idea, the variability hypothesis, the idea that there's more variability in men than women, therefore there are more smart men than there are smart women. And that's not nearly as true as people thought it was. There is still something there, probably, um, but not nearly at the level that people thought. Nice hat. Not a very good picture of her, but it's a, her hat game also is strong. Um, so males have more vi viability than females, therefore more at the high end, and also more at the low end. She couldn't find a difference in the variance. If there's no difference in the variance, that's one way of measuring that, then there you go. People used to think that when women were having their period, they were completely incapacitated. Turns out that's not true. <laughs> she studies this systematically. See, people just said stuff, and people went, oh, yeah. And no one actually goes and collects the data. 
She also was a pioneer in gifted education, so the idea here was let's spark kids, this functionalism again, let's use testing for its function. Let's spot kids who are really bright and get them to go to uh, advanced classes, things like that. Right. So her book, Gifted Children, Their Nature and Nurture, uh, is the first textbook about gifted education. Uh, still pretty influential. And this is where the idea, I don't know if you ever, like the enrichment classes rather than grade acceleration, which to this day is a thing, instead of the idea of skipping a grade, right? Uh, they still don't skip grades, and kids still skip grades anymore, do they? It happened a little bit when I was younger, but usually instead, this the notion of enrichment. So there'd be kids that were would go off and they'd do something else. They'd have their enrichment class. They'd do something interesting and fun rather than uninteresting. A lot of times that involve doing things like, oh, you get to make the sets for the school play. It's a high school. That was really enriching. <coughs> oh, that really, way to, way, to, way to go, Dave. Test really high, and they get you to become a freaking laborer. Not that being a laborer is bad, but you would think they would be going after the intellectual pursuits. But no, build sets for play. Here, blind person, paint the sets. Oh, thanks. That's great. Are you mocking me? So. I think back to like my, especially elementary school education, I think, and some of it was great, by the way, but uh, some of it wasn't, and I, I think back to like, God, these people were just idiots. The ones in London, when I was in school, in school in Sudbury, it was awesome. We could do whatever we wanted. Open school, you just walked around, so cool, so 70s. Yerkes um, was, well, his first love was compared to psychology, there he is. In fact, uh, the Yerkes Primate Center at Emory University in Atlanta is obviously named after him, and it was run by my friend Rob. Um, and Yerkes was also into mental testing. He, in fact, said, what we're going to do is we're going to test soldiers. This is World War I era. We're going to test soldiers as they join the Army. We were drafting people. We may as well be able to spot the bright ones. And he set up two kinds of tests, the alpha test and the beta test. One had was, was analogies and things like that. Uh, the beta was for illiterate people. You gotta understand, in like 1917, when the States finally joins World War I, a lot of people are illiterate all over the world. Like, it isn't like today. And I mean, in Western countries like we live in, it's not like today. People over, jeez, by then, Probably still 40% of Americans and probably a high percentage of Canadians live on farms. They aren't going to school. Yeah, there's compulsory education, but it's like, yeah, but you need your kid to work on the farm. You know? So a lot of people are functionally illiterate. Right? It's not like today where the idea of if someone if someone said to you, you know, I can't read, you'd go, well, what, what language? You need English? Because that's weird. Right? They're going to be shocking to hear that, wouldn't it? So he sets up these two tests. Um, he tests 1.7 million soldiers. It didn't affect the war effort because the state centers the war in April of 1917. The war's over by November of 1918. So it doesn't really have to do much. Um, 
but testing now becomes big business because it's like, look what we can do. Uh, the report he issues is pretty controversial because he finds the average mental age of U.S. soldiers is 13, and there's no way that's actually true. And that should tell you something right there. His test obviously isn't very good, right? Because even if you can get out of the draft if you're a little privileged, you can get out of the draft if you're going to university. Yeah, sure. So should the average mental age be 13? No, probably not. So people were like, there's headlines in magazines and stuff that the nation's in trouble. All young people are all stupid. Um, millennials are killing everything. So what's <laughs> that idea? It's the same sort of you know, alarmist crap that you see today, except now it's on Huffington Post and BuzzFeed, but it's the same sort of thing. People were really up in arms. In fact, the tests weren't any good. It's not that people were dumb. Everybody's getting stupider. No. It's the same thing, like I said, it's the sort of alarmist stuff you see today. Um, you've also got Terman, who is a big proponent of testing. Terman had a group uh, Terman looked at gifted children, and Terman, in fact, followed gifted children. Longitudinal study. Uh, the kids were called Terman's termites. That's what people called them. So they would identify these really gifted children, and he followed them. One of them was Richard Nixon, who became president of the United States. Richard Nixon had an IQ of 180. He was a bad man. He was exceedingly flawed. Let's go with that. He was really flawed. Um, Duffy's a bad person, but he was really flawed. Um, only person ever resigned the presidency, so it tells you something was up. Go read about Watergate, learn all about it. But I'm saying, 180 IQ is pretty high. So he's one of the kids. And Terman's following these kids, and in fact, they were followed by Terman's academic grandchildren kind of thing, and they followed them well into their, until they all died. I don't know if there's any of the termites left, but they're all dead now. But, so termites like, intelligence is all genetic, he's one of these people. Uh, we shouldn't do anything for social programs for poor people because they're just making the gene pool worse. Ooh. And you know what? Uh, not everybody, start, people stop buying that at this point. So there's this guy, Lippman, who's a, actually a reporter for, I think, Chicago Sun-Times, and basically just writes exposés about Terman being an asshole, and about these ideas being ridiculous, which people are starting to view these ideas as being ridiculous into the 20s and 30s. They're starting to become more fringe ideas. So that's good. The world's progressing. Okay. Legacy of Function of, of, of functionalism, especially this sort of Chicago functionalism. Um, we talk about structured function today a lot, right? If you hear me, if you take a class with me, I'm always talking about Timberman's Four Wise, that kind of stuff. William James was a smart man. I mean, that's the, another thing we can say. Um, after World War I, the center of innovation, the center of science becomes the United States. It stops being Germany. Germany's in ruins, and well, not, it's economically in ruins, let's say that. And it's because of a series of unstable governments, etc. Right? So that's the uh, stuff on the Americans. 
questions about that? I really like that stuff because it's starting, psychology starting to seem real. Like it's, it's, it's like, oh yeah, that's psychology like we know. So let's go over here. Yep. Here. Let us speak of Sigmund Freud and his ilk. We all know that psychoanalysis is crap, right? I mean, <laughs> it just is. But it has an effect, or had an effect, and I would say probably to this day has an effect on psychology. So talking about it makes some sense. This is in fact the place to talk about this material, I think. I don't have, we don't have to like it. We can recognize the 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 clearly misogynistic nature of this and just put that out there and say it's, it, that's, the way, that's the way it was. That Freud was a sexist jerk and um, his ideas were ridiculous. That said, you got to put the part in for today, right? Because Viewing women as inferior to men, for example, was not a controversial position in the early 1900s. A lot of women thought it, for Christ's sakes. Like, it's not something that everybody, like, it's weird to think that. We gotta remember that women don't get the vote until 1917 in, in most, uh, in, in, the, in 17 in Canada, I think it's 18 in the States. Uh, and in provincial elections in Quebec, that's from 1944. Yeah. So this is, in fact, the best place to cover this material. This is my view. Uh, it is not shared by any of my colleagues. So, and I don't teach intro. So, but I don't know why it's taught in intro, other than there's Freud. Next. <laughs> or like a 10 minutes on Freud. Uh, I don't know why. Now, is it still taught in personality? Who's taking personality? Who's taking personality? I took it. Yeah. Was it taught there? Yeah. Yeah. Like intensely enough that you're supposed to know it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because it was me too. When I took personality, you know, 1985, but still. <laughs> it, was, it was still bullshit in 1985, like 30, 40 years ago, whatever the hell that is. I don't know why it's taught so much in these other classes. Do we teach alchemy in, in chemistry class? I don't think so. I think probably the hit, the hit when they talk about the history of chemistry, the de development of discipline, the very beginning of the course, people talk a little bit about alchemy. I know that because my daughter took chemistry here, intro chemistry, and in fact she told me that she did her first, she did like a presentation on alchemy, which is kind of cool, turning lead into gold. Okay, but they don't spend three weeks on it. You don't have to learn the intricate, stupid ideas about the Philosopher's Stone. I don't know why we do it anywhere else but here. <sighs> don't like this stuff very much. Um, it's awful and wrong and awfully wrong. And I think that's the most clever thing I've ever written. You don't, obviously, but I think it's really freaking clever to say it's awful and wrong and awfully wrong. Okay. 
By the way, the paper that the the reading for this, remember I give you, it's also interesting. It was chosen to illustrate that there are people with strange beliefs in the world. Let's say that. I figure when I can read, if I read something and I have to read it over and over and over again, it's published in an academic journal. I kind of then think maybe it's kind of garbage. Because I'm pretty smart. And I like edit things for journals and such. Like, I'm not dumb. And I read a paper and go, that's not, that's why it's there. By the way. So if you have trouble understanding that paper, get in line. Okay. Now, we can give maybe Freud some credit uh, talking about the mentally, let's see, mental illness if you want. Hashtag Bell Let's Talk. Um, Because that really helps, right? The world's better now. A hashtag will cure everybody. So, uh, Pinel in France had this idea. <laughs> okay, you have to understand what treatment of mental illness was. Okay? Originally, it was this. Well, you're immoral. That's why you are possessed by probably demons or some such. So therefore, we're going to put you in a cage and not feed you very well because you're obviously possessed by demons. That's the thinking. Pinel goes around, actually, and he's, he's in France, and he's like, and France is really important in, in medicine, history of medicine. Uh, it's, it's, we'll talk about that a bit today. Um, it's the leader, partially because of the French Revolution, and the ideas of enlightenment, etc. But Pinel, he travels around France, and he's like, he sees these, these, these. I guess we call them inst mental institutions today, or psychiatric institutions. I don't think we can call them that. It's the closest thing they were. They're more like prisons. He talks to people. He actually talks to the inmates. They're not patients. They're not being treated. Inmates. And he finds that they're just, they're fine people. They're okay. They're not. There's something wrong. They're not doing well, but they're nice, decent human beings. And he says this to people, why don't we, here's a crazy idea, let's stop having them in chains or putting them in cages. Maybe we could feed them proper food. Wacky. And let's try to manage their behavior rather than, you know, whip them, put them in chains, etc. It's a somewhat modern view. It's not like he wants them out living in group homes with society. Benjamin Rush takes a, a medical model uh, just after the American Revolution. Um, oh, by the way, Pinnell said one of the things about this is making people mentally ill is religion, which is a really kind of a not a, it's kind of a dangerous thing to say at, at any point other than very recently. So that's kind of a, and like, look at the individual and the moral qualities of it. Anyway, so Rush is in the States, uh, and he has a medical model of, of, of mental uh, sorts, which is very different than what most people have. Most people, again, are thinking that it's something to do with the devil. Now, he, on the other hand, he's in the States, right around the time of the American Revolution, he says the problem is liquor. The problem is not enough religion. 
Okay? And what, they, what should be happening is the, the type of, of, of what physicians used to do, which is they should bleed you more. Okay. Bloodletting. That happened well in the 1800s, the bloodletting. It's like, well, you know, all you need to do is bleed. But at least he's got a medical idea. Again, he's used the most modern medical techniques, which is bleeding people. But still. And uh, Jean Itard, okay, interesting case here. You know about the wild boy. You hear a lot about this kid. He was a feral child. Victor. Right. He was a case that Itard looked, looked at. Itard's an interesting character because during the Napoleonic Wars, everybody gets drafted. France is the first modern army. So people get drafted, it's the Grand Army. There's, it's, it's huge and they're well-trained in the whole deal. And he's like, you can't draft me, I'm a doctor. He's totally not a doctor. He's literally making that. So there's no central registry of fees. But they can't just Google him, you're the doctor. So they can't believe him, why would he make that up? So he gets assigned in the French army to being with a medical unit, because the French army is like a modern army, so there are ho medical, ho there are like mobile hospitals. It's so different, that's why the French did so well in the Polonic Wars until the whole world said, like, stop invading countries, France, and then the whole world comes fights. But, so he actually gets on the job training, basically, as a doctor. He's, again, he's not a doctor, but he pretends to be, but I play one on TV, that's his basic thing. And when the war's over, uh, he's, has a, the, the wild boy of Aviron, Victor, whatever his name is. Okay, there's no way he was a wild boy raised by wolves. We all know that, right? Like, there's no freaky way. You can't survive on your own in the woods as a two-year-old until the age of, whenever they found him, 11 or 12 years old. No, he was almost certainly an autistic kid who ran away from home. That's got to be what it was. Like a nonverbal autistic kid. So all this stuff, there's just no way, because they can't live. Humans can't exist on their own in the forests in France for years, because it gets cold in France. Also, there are wild animals, etc. He's an interesting character is all. So that wasn't really a wild child. But he tries to teach him language, that we know that story. Um, so people, there are these asylums set up. Uh, Dorothea Dex is actually really kind of a hero. Um, she toured around, she's from Maine, and she toured around all over the states, these mental institutions. And she would look at the poor care and neglect, and she would expose it. Like she'd show up, and then she'd say, okay, now I'm going to write an expose to a newspaper. Or I'm going to write a book about this. Or, and also what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to your state legislature, and I'm going to have them pass laws to, in, to improve the treatment of people in these asylums. That's pretty much a hero right there, right? Because she, she did a lot of, really did a lot of good. Beers is 
an interesting case because he wrote this book called The Mind That Found Himself. Him, him and all his brothers had a lot of mental health issues. Um, I believe all of them ended up at some point in their lives in a psychiatric hospital. So he goes into the psych a psychiatric hospital, he then gets out, and he writes this book about what it was like. Mind that found itself. He actually starts what's called the mental hygiene movement. Today we would call it mental health, the idea that so he's the first person to talk about this, that not just people who are having problems should be concerned about this stuff, that we should all be concerned about our own and everyone else's. Right? Which is, you know, uh, that's a very modern idea. That's a that's hundred years earlier than, well, Bell Let's Talk, hashtag Bell Let's Talk. That's a hundred years earlier, and he's saying this stuff. So he's kind of a hero, too. Okay, now let's get into the bullshit. Um, not that bloodletting wasn't bullshit, but there is uh, Jean Chapeau uh, is in France, and he's well in France. He's the father of French neurology. Like he's he's, the, he's a big deal. And the French medical system, and that paper does talk about that, so that has some use. The French uh, medicine was the best. They had advances in France that, for example, they didn't have in Germany, which is strange because Germany being this technological and scientific powerhouse, but the French were really good at medicine. France was a much less conservative society, so I think it's probably that. So, he looks at hysteria. You know what hysteria is, right? This is this Some sort of uh, like hysterical paralysis. Okay. okay. And he says, "Wait, you know what I can do? I can hypnotize people, and if I hypnotize them, they can end up with exactly the same problems. Like I can say, you can't move your right arm. You can't move your right arm. You can't move your right arm. That's exactly the same thing as if somebody who has hysterical paralysis can't move the right arm." Right? You know the Freud's famous case of Anna O, right? Where she had glove anesthesia, which is actually impossible. That's not impossible neurologically, it's exceedingly unlikely. Right? So her whole hand doesn't work, and really because of the way you're you're wired, that's a separate circuit than that. Right? So you get your own nerve that does those two. Like there. Does those two. And there's another nerve that does these two fingers and one of those the thumb. So you can't really have your whole hand not working unless it's, quote, all in your head. Okay? But Charcot says, I can make people do, I can do exactly the same thing with hypnosis. So we've got to be careful because it's the same underlying pathology. I'm making people crazy by hypnotizing. So I shouldn't do that. I should only do it on, on hysterics to help cure them. It's an interesting leap. <laughs> you know, it has a sort of an internal logic if you accept the idea, but... Oh, there you go. 
There we go. But he could use it to diagnose hysteria and to rule out faking it, to rule out malingering. Okay? Freud goes to studies with him for a while. This is a picture of him. Um, oh, what's her name again? So this is, this is a, here he is here. And she's a case that he studied. Oh yeah, there you go. Blanche Whitman, the queen of the hysterics. <laughs> oh God. So he would put on these elaborate demonstrations because he's going to medical schools, giving lectures, and he'd bring with him a case. And the case often was this Blanche Whitman who was, quote, the queen of the hysterics. Because she had all kinds of issues. No relation to Dick Whitman, who later on became Don Draper on that. Spoiler. Show stopped in 2015. You should have already watched it at least three times. I watched them 12 currently. Sadly. There he is. Right there, he's thinking something horribly dirty. That's, that's, I can just guarantee that. And he's full of cocaine. Um, the thing about Freud is he, he had a really good PR machine, okay? Like, there's these myths about Freud. The first one is that he's completely at odds with everyone else. It's like it's Freud against the world. That's the first thing. And the second one is that his ideas, he invented out of whole cloth, they were, they were Completely original. No one had thought of anything quite this clever, ever. And neither of those things are true. <laughs> he, wrecked, he destroyed all his papers twice. Yeah, that's what most of your people, most of your top people, what they do is they burn all the evidence. Twice. He also picked his own biographer. Now, a lot of people do that. They authorize biography up. But if you pick the biographer, you're probably going to pick somebody who's, uh, that's the word I'm looking for, sympathetic to your views. And he did that when uh, the Jones book, which is an interesting book. It tells a fascinating tale that borders aren't reality. Okay, so Freud gets an MD in Vienna in 1883, but he really wants to be a research scientist. That was, we saw with people, Freud was an MD too. So like, I mean, it's not like, like this was just a way to get your foot in the door. Um, he is influenced by the zeitgeist in Germany at the time, which the idea here is it's materialism, right? It's the stuff in front of me, it's stuff you can kick, right? It's not the spiritual. His mentor was a guy named Eric Blücke, and uh, he was a colleague of Helmholtz. So again, he's got, you look at the pedigree, it's like, he was actually had some good people. Um, he spends six months with Charcot. And he says, 
there's a quote of his that says, I couldn't learn this stuff in German. He didn't say this. I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, obviously. But I couldn't learn what Charcot does in Germany. No one's that innovative in Germany when it comes to medicine. French medicine, on the, uh, as far as Europe goes, the, the top. Basic science, German science is the top. Technology, German technology is the top. But for some reason, medicine, the French are best at it. And this probably has something to do with how the French Revolution worked, etc. So in 1895, with uh, Brewer, there's a, there's a paper of studies in hysteria, or I guess more of a monograph, if you call it, um, which has the Anna O case, the famous Anna O case, right? There's a Darwinian an angle to this. He talks about sex. Darwin's all about sex, right? So reproduction. So I think, okay. I'm telling you what people say. I don't know how Darwin, like it says that people are irrational. Evolution says people aren't rational or irrational. It just says they are. So I'm not sure I buy that. And the sex thing, I guess that was in the air. He wanted to find a way to get at the unconscious, which was not done something he thought up. People talked about unconscious a long time ago and had for a very long time. Uh, he tried hypnosis but rejected it. He then comes up with free associations, which is just start talking. Whatever's on your mind, just say it. And he does dream analysis. So he's got his famous seduction hypothesis that says that hysteria is the result of abuse. And really nasty sexual abuse, okay? Like not, not there's non-nasty sexual abuse, but you, you see what I'm saying? Because this involves incest. And he's like, wait a second. Every case I have come in my office is a woman that has a similar, this sort of hysterical thing going on. Hmm. You can't all be victims of incest. That's really, society can't be that screwed up. Maybe it's more of a fantasy thing. Edith's complex, right? So it's more an imagined seduction. And by seduction, I mean being raped by your father. If you're, it's not really a seduction thing. <sighs> right, and the men that come in, again, same thing. They all seem to have this idea that they had sex with their mother. Well, they don't have it. I think they do. Right? It's got the Oedipus complex. So this is getting some traction in Europe. And it's being heard about in the States. It's all being written in German now. So, but I guess I told you guys, if, if, if you're a 
an educated person, you read German. So you're reading the books. They're written in German, but you can read them. And he comes over to the States. So in the first decade of the 20th century, there's, like I said, psychoanalysis, the American tour, stopping at many universities, giving talks, having workshops, symposia, etc. There would have been t-shirts with like merch people bought, hats, probably not, probably those last two things aren't true. <coughs> they had t-shirts back then. Uh, and he ends up in places like, well basically doing university tour, uh, talks to, to, to psychologists, philosophers, MDs. And he's actually really productive. Interpretation of dreams, psychopathology, everyday life, three essays on sexuality, wit and its relation to the unconscious, that's four books in five years. That's pretty good. I mean, that's, in fact, more pretty good. It's amazing. That's really productive. I mean, when you're just making shit up, I guess it's pretty easy to write. <laughs> okay, so here he is here. Um, at Clark's 20th anniversary, anniversary, 20th anniversary celebration by a G. Stanley Hall. Suddenly I'm talking like Christian Slater in Heathers. I love that movie, by the way. They're making a TV show of it? <coughs> I think it's a mistake. So this is great. I love the fact now that we're into, like I've said before, we're into photographs. This is, where's Floyd? Here he is. Right, and there's you say, So he invites Freud over. He's like, you should come over and give a talk. So you can see, and there's the there's grad students here. You can see in the back, these are obviously grad students and faculty. There's some younger people. You can see, I don't see a lot of people who we would call women. No, none. Um, a lot of white guys. <laughs> so he's a series of lectures in 1909 in the States. Um, his English wasn't great then, so mostly he's speaking in German and it's being translated. So he'd say something, and so the person had to copy and dance and translate. Eventually he speaks pretty decent English, because he moves to the States. So now Freud's getting international recognition. He's now a superstar. He's famous. You must understand, this is a different time than now. So he's, 100 years ago, 110 years ago, he is, and other intellectuals can be important figures. This doesn't happen much anymore. Like Albert Einstein was a celebrity. Sigmund Freud was a celebrity. These were real, like everybody knew who these people were. They didn't necessarily know about their work or understand it. They vaguely knew about it. But they were celebrities. They, what they were doing was in the newspaper. And that's better than, I don't know, Instagram influencers going to Fire Festival. <laughs> Though all of them having a bad experience at that thing is just so, it's just delicious. Like, it's just, it's so wonderful. Oh, I can't believe that. Look at this tent I have to stay in. That's great. So, 
There's some delicious irony there. Nonetheless, uh, I'd rather even Sigmund Freud be somebody famous than, I don't know, someone who has a makeup channel on YouTube. That's just me. American psychologists, except for Hall, like Hall loves him. G. Stanley Hall's like, this guy's breakthrough, he's awesome. Most American psychologists, remember, are functionalists um, or some structuralists in the, in the Kitchener tradition. They're doing science, most of them. And there's this kind of thing of, I don't know what to think of him. There's got to be something to it because he's famous. Like, you can't help but think that, right? Yes, I don't know, but this is weird, man. Have you read the stuff that he says? Because that's weird. That's basically the reaction of most American, most North American academics. Canadian and American are like, I don't know, man. But you can't argue with results. He makes people better. It's sort of what people were saying. Okay, so his daughter, uh, Anna, Anna Freud, um, who's not Anna O, people confuse those two. Anna O is not his daughter, that was a famous patient. Anna Freud is his daughter, she's his daughter, psychoanalyst. Um, World War I changes everything because you understand nobody had seen anything like World War I before. Like it was nasty. Millions and millions of people dying. Um, and basically the world was like, well, we didn't do it enough, so let's do it again in 20 years. And we have a second world war. But when there's the first, after the first world war, people are really shocked at how nasty it is. And there's a lot of young men coming home that are really screwed up. War screws you up, but that kind of war, where you're sitting in mud all day and there's the threat of gas attacks, so like, it's really nasty world. So it's like, it can't be all about sex. There's also got to be something to do with death in here. I've got to throw some death in here, because people, look what happened in World War I. It's horrible. And his daughter, basically, is saying maybe there's these competing, like, the, the inigo, superego thing, a lot of that's from his, from his kid. So he writes a book called The Ego and the Id in 1923, and eventually, now this is when he introduces the idea of the id, the ego, and the superego. As these three competing deal, deals, structures, I guess we call them. Um, he talks now a lot about defense mechanisms. He talks about the anxiety that comes from these conflicts. <clears throat> right? And then, how we defend against them. And there are three kinds of anxiety we can have. We can have objective anxiety. That's when you're anxious over things that you should be anxious about. Right? This is kind of like those different, um, well, this is not unlike, we, unlike how we view things today about stress. Right? There are things to be stressed out over. You know? Like... If the building was on fire, yeah, that's a stressful event, and anybody would call that a stressful event. Objectively, that's stressful. There are, quote, neurotic stresses, and then there are more, there's moral anxiety. 
So these are caused by inego superego clashes. Anne is big into this, the different uh, structures, and she's also big into the idea of defense mechanisms. So she's really influential on her father. There she is, with her dad. She looks way happier than he ever looked. What do you think? Like she looks like, hey, I'm Anna Freud. That's pretty great. So we have things like repression, other defense mechanisms, projection. It's funny how all this stuff is so in the still in, in, in the popular culture, right? People talk about repression. People talk about projection all the time, like it's real. Don't they? Like you hear people say that. Are you projecting? No, no one projects. Stop it. Sometimes it's really hard being a psychologist because you gotta like say to people, like it's you, you totally destroy people's things, thinking about things. It's like the first time our daughter said stuff, she said, Mom, 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 my wife's like, she's saying mama. I said, no, she's testing her phonies. I'm such a jury. Like, it's destroying fun. That's what basically we do. So she, she talks about sublimation. This is the idea of, oh, I don't know, uh, you have internal conflicts, create parts. Internal conflicts, design experiments. Whatever. Create something because of your conflicts. That's the only successful kind of defense. Everything else leads to neurosis. Neurosis, that's neurosis, yeah. According to Freud. Okay. Of course, he builds up a lot of followers. People want to go work with him. He's famous. Um, most of the time, people would look and go, okay, except for all the sex stuff, this is pretty good. Internal conflict, get it. Sure. Unconscious, you're not aware of it, got it. Defense mechanisms, got it. I don't want to sleep with my mom. It's, that's not a thing. There's this wonderful moment. Who here's watched The Sopranos? Watch The Sopranos, great show, right? And Dr. Melfi, who is Tony's um, therapist, is a strict Freudian. I'm sure they're just doing this for laughs because it makes it a lot funnier. And he gets really creeped out all the time when she talks about his mother. You know. And it's, it's, there's some great scenes, especially early on, when he's. It's, it's so the first and most probably most famous person to split off is Carl Jung. Okay, he comes up with word association, not Freud. He's the, you know, so he's like a cherry, death, window, murder. Okay, see that's what it actually probably means something. If all the words that in the, the free word association, if they're all about killing people. Probably something wrong with you. That anything else, it probably isn't. A lot of these techniques, by the way, are still used by psychologists today, and they're used because people expect it. That's all. I have a friend who's a, well, I shouldn't say friend, acquaintance, many years ago, who was a clinician. We met each other on eBay, so that's, the world's weird. Um, 
But she told me, and she's a clinician, probably still is, that uh, she does word association and Rorschach tests and has a coach in her office because people expect those things. She said when she started her practice out, she had two chairs and a table. And people go, where's the couch? So she bought a couch. And then she started doing the word association. It's like, well, are we doing word association? She says, I take notes when they do the word association and when they're doing the Rorschach test, and they really don't have nothing to do with that. They're just me writing down things like my grocery list because it doesn't mean anything that people expect it, so I get to talk. Like I said, if somebody's constantly saying, death, murder, assassinate, it's like, oh, I think we got a problem here. But usually that's not what it is, right? So he comes up with this. He presents at that Clark conference that I should have noticed. Uh, to, rather pointed out that he's in the picture. And he's got this idea, he's, he's just called analytical psychology, and his notion is that there is a collective unconscious. Uh-huh. That there is part of our unconscious mind that is about our species. And we have memories. And you're saying, wait a second, Dave, you're an evolutionary psychologist, and I took Evo Sang with you, and I know that there are Things that we have that are sort of built, yeah, that's right. I didn't say, I didn't call them memories. He said we have memories of our, that our species has. They're, that's a different thing. This is more like Assassin's Creed than anything. <laughs> this is the idea that your memories are somehow in your genes, and that's just not true. Young's fun. It's not as gross as Freud. It's also kind of crazy. Don Cherry, Don Cherry Caller. Okay. One of the neat things about Young is that he has more, it's more just talking. The therapy is a lot more just talking. Freudian analysis is very strict about how it works. Works. And uh, Young liked experiments. Like, he was, he liked reading the experimental psychology today. I'll say this though, I don't know how you do an experiment on the collective unconscious. I don't know how you measure that. But at least he was like, oh no, this is good stuff. We can, we can talk about that too. That's totally reasonable. There's nothing wrong with it. Okay, Karen Horney um, was another. Freudian, these are called neo, we call these today neo Freudians. These are people who started out as being Freud people. They go get trained by Freud, and they're like, no. No, this can't be a thing. By the way, when you're a psychoanalyst, part of it is that you go into analysis. And it used to be that when you go to work with Freud, he's not only like your teacher, like you're getting training, but he's also doing psychoanalysis with you, which is a bit of a conflict of interest, it seems to me. I'm not saying Freud was unethical in that way. I'm saying that the trust that you build up with a therapist and then the person's also teaching you. Right? Doesn't that feel a little weird? Like if I knew, and I don't want to know, your most inner, innermost intimate thoughts, and I was also teaching you classes, 
I could destroy you if I felt like it. Right? I could like say two words if you again if I knew all this, and I don't want to know them. Do not come by my office and tell me. I don't have that training. I know just enough to wreck you. Like I could totally destroy somebody, not on purpose. That seems a little weird, right? A little off. I don't know. And I had therapy, I told you therapy, right? Because I had a real anger problem, and uh, I used to like put my fists through walls, stuff like that, or my head. I, I'm a, I was just a real peach to live with like, 20 years ago, 18 years ago. So I, and I go, go 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 therapy, and the guy's like, "What do you do?" I said, "I'm a psychologist." He looks at me. I said, "No, no, not that kind." I said, "The nice thing is you don't have to convince me that I, I know this is going to work." I said, because I know, I, you don't have to convince me of the efficacy of psychotherapy. I believe it works, because I've read papers, I know it works. He's like, okay. I said, so fix me. Can we start? It was good. It was good. He was pretty good. But he was like, I can't, it worked pretty well. I said, I'm, I believe that you, don't, you didn't have to convince me. It was like giving me medicine. Of course it worked. Good guy. So Karen Horney, um, she starts out as a Freudian, and then becomes quite a critic of him. Now again, she's a neo-Freudian. So she still believes in unconscious conflict. She still talks about defense mechanisms. You gotta understand that well, like I said, someone sensible. She's still got a little bit of, there's still a little bit of the, the residue crazy of in this. But, uh, I misspelled neuroses there. She emphasizes sociocultural aspects of personality. In other words, look, it's not just that you had trouble toilet training, which created your personality. There's also everything around you and your culture. Seems like a pretty sensible, ooh, what a radical idea, right? And also for, you know, disorder. So it's not just that, oh, it's because you want to screw your mom. And that makes you go, ew, so you're the defense mechanism. No, it's also what's happening around you and how you grew up. So she's, you know, basically points out, for, you know, obvious, well, something that's true, which is that the Freudian view of women and sexuality and sexuality in women was sexist, misogynistic, right? So she, she called it feminine psychology, but I think today we can call her, we call it feminist psychology, perhaps. Um, a lot of feminist scholars look up to her uh, because, well, she's, Standing up to one of the great misogynist thinkers of our time, of all time. Um, she didn't think that women being different than men on certain things had much to do with biology. She said it was a lot more to do with the environment. Today we would not worry about nature versus nurture. But, She would also note that 
She's one of the first people of this whole group, all we talked about today, to say, look, the environment's playing a role here, and not just the environment of when you were toilet training or breastfeeding. She's got a flexible view of people. Again, the, the, the Freudian view is not a flexible one, is it? Right? We're all conflicted the same way. That's what Freud says. We're all con conflicted the same way. Everybody works like this. Women are like this, men are like this. I think the weirdest part of Freud, and there's a lot of weird, it comes up with the Oedipus complex for men, right? And then he's like, well, why do women, oh, I know, they want penises. And people are like, oh, of course. Like, what kind of world are you living in where women are walking around going, you know what I really need is just some inanimate penises. uncomfortable for it. It's just bizarre and weird and awful. She talked about multiple selves. So you've got your, this is the situation versus the person, right? You know, about this stuff. So you behave differently in different situations. Yeah? So, for example, um, I do most of the cooking in my house. So when my wife and son come home, they don't, when they say, what's for dinner, I don't pull out a presentation and give them a lecture on dinner. That would be weird. Right? I don't speak to you guys the way I speak to my family because it just would be wrong and weird. Right? We all have our multiple selves, don't we? So she says that we all, we sort of play different roles. I really like that. There's a core person of who I am and who you all are, but it's not unchangeable, it's flexible, and we're different in different situations, right? When I'm having a casual conversation with a friend of mine, I swear a lot more than I do when I'm teaching. I try not to. I mean, I guess I did have the word bullshit on, on my slides, but so we're all a little bit different. I really like that. She's still got the bit of the Freud in her, though. It's about anxiety from childhood experiences, not anxiety from childhood weirdness about weirdnesses that we I will no longer speak of. But it's still, it's about your childhood, it's about your past. Okay? So it's a different view than Freud, but it still is influenced heavily by Freud. Still is influenced really heavily by it. Right? All right. The, the place I will give Freud credit, and you know, for me, giving Freud credit for anything is a difficult thing for me to do. But the one, one place I can see Sigmund Freud as, as being someone who, I will say, that's, that's innovative thinking. He didn't see children as miniature adults. 
in a lot of respects, look at, look at pictures from the 1800s. Kids are dressed like adults, aren't they, right? They're told to be quiet because they're basically stupid, miniature adults. They haven't learned everything yet, so they should be quiet. Children are viewed as separate and their minds are being different as being different than those of adults. That's an important difference um, between the prevailing notion of what kids were like and what Freud thought. So I, I, we can give them credit there. And I really do. I, I think that's an important distinction. The idea of the unconscious is not a Freudian idea originally, but he makes it something people talk about. And today we talk about unconscious processing. If you took memory with me, you know that I've said you know, 90 odd percent of the processing you're doing, you're not aware of. It's not, it's not accessible to consciousness. So the idea there's an unconscious, is, is an unconscious that has an ego, superego, that are fighting out an all time <coughs> battle about because of horrible childhood No. He talked about sex, but he wasn't the only person talking about sex. That's, that's a myth. He had really good PR. Right. Like any famous, like any Instagram influencer, Freud had really good PR and knew how to get a lot of clicks, basically. And who, what was going on there? Who was that? Oh, I've done that. I, I, I wouldn't mock somebody who does that. Unless it's somebody I know that I would mock them. It's not somebody we know? It's not one of our people? One of our psychology people? No. Oh, too bad. Okay, because then we can make fun of them. No, no, because it's, then it's, you know, fair game. But uh, I don't think it would be nice to do that to somebody. All right, any questions on this? Please. Yeah. Wrong because I think there's a whole lot oh, of think, Sure. Oh, I think that's probably true. If you can come up with ideas where, but you, like, you actually think, is there any evidence, experimental evidence, of there being projection or repression or sublimation? That's the problem. It feels right. You're correct. It does feel right. Like, it, I, I'm not denying that. Part of the lure of this is the defense mechanisms have an intuitive appeal. They just don't actually explain any data. And they, it's all post hoc too. You can't make a prediction in advance. One of the problems, for example, people will say, and this is not quite about defense mechanisms, but let's think about this. If, if, if you're really clean and neat, they say what? They say you're anal, right? Except also if you're really dirty, because you could be anal attentive or anal expulsive. Oh, I see. So no matter what, it does that a lot. It's it's not testable. Yeah. Oh, the people. I don't know that about repression and stuff. I mean, repression. I'm certain doesn't happen because there's no evidence that happens. In fact, we we tend to remember nasty things. Yeah. Works the opposite way. Uh, pro projection reminds me of, you know, I know you are, but what am I? Like that's really all projection is when you think about it. So. And, Oh, sure, but you're aware of it. 
These defense mechanisms are supposed to be, you're not supposed to be aware of them, right? They're unconscious. You're aware when you're angry and you punch something, or frankly, when I was marking me, your, your papers, and I wasn't angry at your papers, they were all pretty good. At one point, I was like, I gotta go just expend some energy. And I, I got on my bike and rode eight kilometers and came back. Because it's like, I'm just all worked up. You know, and believe me, I'll be marking uh, 2606 tests starting tomorrow, and those do make me angry. <laughs> they really do, because they're second year students, they're as good as you guys. Everybody in life is weird. And I will, there'll be a lot of bike rides. And a lot of like going and lifting weights and things like that. Yeah, so, but I'm aware of what I'm doing. These things, you're not aware of those when you have those defense mechanisms according to point. That's the big difference. Good point though. Other questions? All right. Thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for Dave, uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures from Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, what I call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>